In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. On Septuagesima Sunday, our focus now shifts from a meditation on Christmas to a preparation for Easter. But just as the anticipation of the Advent season led us into the celebration of the Nativity and the Epiphany of Christ, So now we approach the Lenten season of preparation as the sure and trustworthy path to the resurrection. The unique sanity of the Christian sense of time is held by the tension between fast and feast. Our spiritual maturity is the fruit of remembrance, of penitence, and of festivity and prayer as we are formed by them over the course of years in their pattern. Our souls long for resurrection, even now. But that renewal of our souls requires of us the labors of humility. To be able to enjoy ourselves in the feast is at once the ability to, and the willingness to deny ourselves in the fast. The call to feast at Easter is very great. And so the call to fast in the Lenten season is also great. The life of faith is characterized by this tension of comfort and demand. We are always, in all moments, given the consolation of grace, the effective power of God's goodwill in us for our salvation. If we are battered about in the world, if we are beset by our battle against sin, God is faithful and just always to forgive us and to cleanse us and to restore us. But at the same time, we are always called into actively following our Lord. There is no such thing as a passive Christian life. The demand of Christianity on our lives is a call to make good on the vows made in baptism and confirmation, to fight manfully, to fight bravely, under the banner of Christ until our life's end. Lent cannot be undertaken without this grace, as its beginning and as its end, surrounding it and working through it. But this grace should never produce in us the error of complacency, Lent is a reminder that we are given grace in order that we might strive with all our heart and soul with that grace in faithfulness to all the good works that God has set before us. Our role in this season, then, is to be people of our word, to live out our baptismal vows, to answer the Lord's call to arms in the fight against the arch enemies of the soul and of his people, the church, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and to not prove truant to this calling ever. The epistle lesson this morning demonstrates the rigor required in faithful exercise of the Christian life. St. Paul takes up two analogies to illustrate this rigor, running and boxing. In both, he emphasizes that proficiency counts for much more than just mere directionless effort. For a runner, it's not just about getting out there to give it a go. 
We know when runners are serious about their running because they train faithfully so as to win, either to win a race or to set new personal bests. Proficient runners are those who do not lack endurance. They are those who keep pace well, who manage their breathing well, and they don't just fitfully throw themselves forward through space and become easily winded in doing so. So too, the proficient boxer is not one who just flails their arms about in an attempt to be wild or flashy or to intimidate their opponent with empty action. The trained boxer is one who knows how to regard his opponent, to not be distracted or anxious by their movements, and to pick their strikes strategically and to land them. We know the proficient boxer, ultimately, as the one who actually defeats his opponent. St. Paul's Corinthian audience would have had these images at ready command because of their familiarity with the athletic competitions in Corinth in the arena, not unlike our own Olympic Games. But as with the Olympics, the point is not merely to get in there and compete. The point is to win. Mere participation that does not ardently pursue victory is not enough for true lovers of the sport. St. Paul's point is one of priorities, calling out the Christians for showing enthusiasm for mere games in Corinth, but not for the prize that really matters. For us, in our own, context, in our own context, the question might be, why do we spend so much time valuing and pursuing temporary goods like wealth, power, reputation, uh, the illusion of eternal youth, when there is a prize to be gained that makes all other prizes meaningful and without which no prize is meaningful? Are we running and fighting to win the prize that really matters? St. Paul says of himself that he runs and he fights in such a way so as to gain eternal life, to be found pleasing in the sight of his Lord and friend. Because defeat in this matter would render useless all other goods he might pursue. The epistle represents the element of demand in the Christian life. Our work is never over. Our training is never really complete. And there is never a time when it is safe to grow lax because proficiency is measured in a faithfulness and a love that is practiced continually and never given up. We have to be cautious, though, because as modern hearers of this language, we are in, often in danger of misunderstanding the language of prize and reward because we live in a kind of performance and productivity culture. It's hard for us to even begin to hear the language of competition and glory without collapsing it into a kind of egotistical vision for ourselves, a kind of self-substantiating idea of who we are and what we might be. We really love to think of life in transactional terms of effort and reward, but even more than this, we really like to think of life in terms of self-optimization, a kind of perfecting of a vain image of ourselves that we hold out as an ideal. And St. Paul's image goes to war on this. 
because his vision of the athlete in his example is that of a person who loves what they do so much that they do not permit distractions, not someone who wishes to prop themselves up in a kind of vanity. His is the image of an athlete athlete whose devotion is manifested by sacrifice. Our image of the athlete too often tends to be one marked by a kind of empty celebrity, of skill for sure, but of an inflated sense of ego and delusions of grandeur, of mastery meriting fame and adoration from others. And in doing this, we trade the dignity of sacrifice for the vanity of spectacle. And it's in our peril and our temptation to do this that the gospel rescues us. The gospel lesson makes clear that no one earns the right to work in the master's vineyard, obliterating any notion that we do this thing for ourselves and of ourselves. All the laborers in the Lord's vineyard are those who were standing by without purpose until the Lord comes and draws them into his work. No one deserves the privilege of the master's calling, but even so, he is faithful to call and to reward those who answer. As the late Bishop Morse once said, all is grace. Yet the parable reveals how it is possible to forget this truth when one forgets that their place in the vineyard is by invitation. No one applies for their position. No one gives a stellar interview to work in the vineyard. To forget that this calling is the common beginning of everyone produces, if we're not careful, a kind of pious elitism that seeks to measure time spent for reward deserved. It is a kind of elitism too often familiar among even Christians who dedicate themselves in a particularly strong way to the things of faith, especially and unfortunately those who gravitate toward traditional church settings. But if we're not careful, we mistake the good things of faithfulness and longevity in the faith, our being stalwart in orthodoxy and communion with the ancient church as a way of flexing in the face of others that kind of vain spectacle, believing and unbelieving alike. To the extent we do this, we forget that grace upholds us in every moment, and nothing we do has meaning apart from the living presence of the Spirit among us to impart that grace continually. So Lent calls us back today. The season of pre-Lent calls us to get ready to be called back. As we begin to prepare for Lent, we should take seriously, extremely seriously, the call of Lent to fast rigorously, to practice examination of conscience piercingly, and to, and to eradicate from ourselves and our lives anything that holds us back from pursuing the prize of Christ's well done at the end of our life. Lent reminds us that the real fight of the Christian life is not found in our bitter complaints against those whose labors we find inadequate, but rather first and foremost in our own hearts. While it is easier, though, to focus on the shape the enemy takes outside of us, we are doomed to lose the fight of Lent if we do not first look to the shape that the enemies of our soul takes within us. The fight out there 
becomes ingrown and fruitless, if it ever exceeds the fight in here, along the front line of good and evil that is drawn within every human heart. But a good and rigorous Lent makes starkly clear what the gospel makes clear, that no one earns salvation, no one earns the Lord's invitation. We should not presume upon grace such that the vigor of our love grows cold, but we should not pretend in our striving that we are ever not in need of grace to hold us up. No one keeps a good enough Lent to merit Easter. Easter is the fruit of Christ's Lenten battle, accomplished once and for all. Lent should therefore be a time when we renounce our pretensions, be cheered up by the revelation of our silliness and frailties, that we might receive the gift and true strength in the Spirit and his calling worthy of the sacrifice of our lives. In this, our vision as Christ's workers and laborers is corrected, for it is by losing in the world through the battle of Lent that we win in the kingdom of heaven. For as the Lord himself said, the last will be first and the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.